We spent the last five weeks, if you've been around, in a vision series, and what we've done is we've looked at kind of who we are as a church and, and where we're headed, and been very encouraged by the responses to that and the feedback, so thank you so much uh, for that. Um, not only was it personally, personally heartening to, to hear the way people have embraced this biblical mission, um, but also evidence to me of the Spirit of God at work here. And uh, This morning we're going to return to the book of Acts, so if you have a Bible, Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one at the end of the service. You can go right out the doors there and uh, at our Welcome Center. We have a Bible for you. Um, we're going to return to where we were before we started the vision series. Um, and oh, this is a new series. This is a series called The Way. Acts 10 marks a significant shift in the book of Acts. In fact, some call chapter 10 actually the most important chapter in the book of Acts even read one theologian who said that this chapter is right up there with some of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. So we see why it marks a turning point uh, in this book. And what makes it so important, among other things, is it draws our attention to a very pivotal moment in history, a transition, we might say, from the old way of doing things to a whole new epic in God's plan of salvation. In Acts chapter 10, we have this incredible story of Peter being made aware by God himself that his salvation is not just to the Jewish people, but in fact to all nations, all tribes, people of all tongues, races, and backgrounds. And so it serves, again, as a real turning point. Now, author and professor Justin Holcomb kind of writes this about the book of Acts as a whole. He says, Acts is the story of God's grace flooding out to the world. From the cross and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, nothing is more prominent in Acts than the spread of the gospel. The missionaries in Acts proclaim the gospel of God, and it is through grace that people are able to respond with faith. So that's the story, and if you're new with us, what we do is we're committed to what's called expositional preaching, so we work our way through books of the Bible, keeping the text and the context as we say, and this morning we're looking at a, a little story a smaller story in the context of that big story. So uh, let me begin. We're going to cover all of chapter 10. I won't read every single verse because there is some repetition there. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 8 of Acts chapter 10. Here reads the word of the Lord. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people. And prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So at the end of Acts chapter 9, I didn't cover this today, uh, but at the end of cha Acts chapter 9, Peter brings to life a young girl who had died. Her name was Dorcas. Uh, not a name that's trending among expecting mothers at this time, but her name was Dorcas, and uh, she had died. 
And Peter brings her back to life in this incredible miracle. And after he does, he hangs around there in Joppa with a man named Simon the Tanner. Now, you'll notice if you read the New Testament, there are some names that appear over and over again, very common. Simon is one of those. Uh, John, as far as men's name. Mary, uh, lady's name. So you see some of these names. So there are two different Simons that we're going to read about uh, today. Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner. And about 30 miles from Joppa, which would be at least a full day's journey, if you, know, if you were on horse, even longer than that if you were walking, in Capernaum lived a man named Cornelius, about whom I just read. Now, Cornelius was a centurion. You know the word century means, what, a hundred years. Well, a centurion was a person in charge of a leader of 100 soldiers. Those soldiers were part of a cohort, in this case, an Italian cohort of 600 men, and those 600 men were part of a legion of 6,000 men. So, so Cornelius is a pretty uh, important guy. He's not the head of it all, but he's a very important guy. He was a big deal. And Cornelius, we're told, was a devout man who feared God along with all his household, gave alms generously, and prayed continually to God. Now, this is very high praise, isn't it? This is very high praise. You know, a lot of times with young adults today, at least some, they seem to be real coy about their relationships. You know, you see two people hanging around, you don't really know, are they in a relationship, are they just friends? You ask them and you kind of get this evasive answer. Uh, sometimes uh, young men or young, young women date people secretly. You know, they don't want their parents to know, they don't want their friends to know. And maybe they've never had that, that so-called DTR, that define the relationship moment. But everybody who sees them knows that they are an exclusive uh, couple. But they don't want anyone else to know. And sometimes, because the person they're dating is really not a good influence. Maybe they're not a believer. Maybe that person is, is, is leading them astray. So they're not a good influence. They try to keep it a secret. But if you find someone who fits the description that I just read, a devout, God-fearing, generous person who prays all the time, that's somebody you, you're proud of. That's somebody you want to introduce to your mom and dad. That's somebody you want to tell everybody about, this is my boyfriend, this is my girlfriend. That's very, very high praise for an individual. And this is how Cornelius is described. This is, again, this is a high-quality dude here that people would respect, that people would seek to emulate. Now, the phrase, he feared God, is not just a generic phrase, but is a specific category of people. The book of Acts uh, generally deals with four types of people, Jews, uh, Gentiles, we were Greeks or non-Jews, Samaritans, and God-fearers, quote, God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, but with one notable exception. They refused to get circumcised. So they were Gentiles who spoke Greek, but they participated in the religious life of the Jewish community. They went to the temple. They worshiped the true God of the Bible, the God Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. But they just weren't willing to get that surgery done. So they weren't considered full proselyte converts to the Jewish religion. Again, they're really good people. They're religious people. They're respectable people. Um, but they weren't full converts. And even more importantly... They had not recognized and trusted in Jesus as the one true Messiah and Savior. So remember, 
This is a really, really good person morally. The reason that God himself will actually call Peter to go to Cornelius' house and share the gospel with him is that even though he's a phenomenal person morally, he hasn't turned from his sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, which means he's actually apart from God, separated from God, at odds with God, even under the wrath of God. Here's our first point this morning from the text. Neither religious activity, good behavior, persistent prayer, nor radical generosity can render anyone right with God. These are all the very things that Luke, when he's writing the book of Acts, describes Cornelius as. He checks all the moral boxes. He's an upstanding citizen. He's an honorable leader. He's a highly respected military officer and commander, and he needs Jesus just as much as everybody else. In fact, we could even say, one could make the argument, because of his righteousness, he needs Jesus even more than everybody else. Where else do we see God sending a man, uh, sending, singling out a man and his family and sending a, pre- a preacher directly to that family? The God-fearers in Acts, like Cornelius, they believed in God. They, they sought to obey the God of Israel. Even they, they, they put off and they refused to worship all the false gods of their day. But they were separated from God. Objects of God's wrath because they had not trusted in Jesus Christ. And I think so often we, we tend to believe that what really pleases God is our good works. You know, those times when we resist temptation, temptation's right in our face. And we resist it, and we, we, we put it aside, and we do what's right, and we think, that's really what God requires of me. Or maybe it's our generosity, or our sacrifice, or our prayer lives. But what God really wants, in fact, what God actually demands, is brokenness and faith, repentance and faith in Jesus. That's the only way that anyone can ever be made right with God. You can be the most religious person. You can be the greatest so-called prayer warrior. You can be the most generous person around and still have a heart that's spiritually dead. You can know all the right things about God and still not know God because knowing God only comes through faith in Jesus. I think sometimes we think the whole goal of Christianity is to make us better people. I mean, that has to be the goal, right? Make us less angry, more patient, uh, less vindictive, more forgiving, less lustful, whatever it is, that has to be the goal, right? Well, actually, that's not the goal. The goal of Christianity is to give us Christ, His obedience for our disobedience, His life for our life, His death in our place, His righteousness for our unrighteousness. See, making people better doesn't solve the problem. Why? Because that's not what God requires of us, just for us to get better. It's not moral improvement. It's not us becoming a better, more patient, kinder, more polite person. That has never saved anybody. What God demands is actually much more than that. What God requires of every person who would be made right with Him is actually perfection. Total perfection. Complete perfection. And that's something that we can never attain to. That's something we can never uh, reach. Perfection must be credited to us by faith. 
Now, this is what Cornelius would learn. Despite all the good things he'd done, his a reputation in the community, all the times, the hours on his knees in prayer, all the generous gestures, he too needed to be reconciled to God. And this is why God sent Peter to go share with Cornelius the gospel. Now look at verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey uh, and approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So the sixth hour is, is noon. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So while the men are on their way to get Peter, Peter gets hungry. That's a natural thing. It's a, he's up on the hot desert sun, he's on a housetop, and he gets hungry. You ever seen those Snickers commercials where, um, you know, somebody who's normally a wonderful, polite, you know, kind person, they get hungry, and then... They become like, you know, they substitute, you know, Joe Pesci or somebody. And they say, look, you're not yourself when you're hungry. I have one person in my family who's like that. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But uh, they're normally wonderful, polite, enjoyable. And I'm using the word they intentionally um, so you don't try to guess. But, but when they get hungry, it's like, uh-oh, he or she's hungry. We, we, we have to be aware of that, right? Well, Peter's hungry. In fact, he's so hungry that he falls into a trance. And while the food is being prepared... He sees this vision of heaven being opened up and on a sheet being let down by four corners, animals and birds and reptiles being lowered down. And then he's told, rise up, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? He says in the Greek, may it never be. I will never eat. I will never do this. By no means. Not a chance. Kind of a bold thing to say to God, isn't it? God asks you to do something. You say, I'm never going to do it. Remember, Peter, this is why, one reason he gets this reputation as a very impetuous, sort of fiery and feisty disciple who puts his foot in his mouth. But the reason for Peter's reluctance is that Jewish people had been commanded for centuries at that point not to eat food that was unclean, which included birds of prey and reptiles and crawling animals, the very things presented to Peter on this sheet to eat. So Israel... As you likely recall, or may recall, Israel had very distinct requirements in terms of what they could eat and what they could not eat. And those dietary restrictions were meant to set them apart from the neighboring nations. So they would be, they would be set apart. They would stand out from the neighboring nations who worshipped all kinds of gods. Gods of the sea and the earth and the sky, gods of pleasure, gods of fertility, all kinds of gods. To eat meat from a forbidden animal or meat prepared in a forbidden way was an affront to the God who had rescued them from Egypt and made them his very own people. So Peter refuses. He refuses to eat what God sends down on the basis that it's unclean. But God says to him, don't call common or, or unclean what I am calling clean. This is a huge moment in the life of God's people. 
This is a, might even go so far as to say it's a turning point in redemptive history. The shadow has given way to reality. A new era has arrived. All of those restrictions which set apart the people of God, part of the old covenant, actually expired. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians don't have to obey the law. The laws that come flow out of the character of God, uh, which are written in the ten words and summarized by Jesus in the so-called great commandment, are still to be obeyed by believers. But the dietary and cultic laws meant to separate God's people from the pagan nations expired at the coming of Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant. One theologian says it very succinctly about Peter's vision. In that moment, centuries of dietary laws and legal requirements that God had sent to His people through Moses were instantly repealed. No longer were God's people required to worry about or be concerned about what, was, what food was clean, what food was unclean, what they could eat and what they could not eat. After all, Jesus Himself said, in, in context of this same sort of discussion, what makes a person clean is not what goes into him, what he eats and drinks, but what comes out of his heart. So in this vision, God corrects Peter on what is clean and unclean. But, very important to note, this is not ultimately about food. This is actually about people. In fact, when Peter reflects on this vision just a few hours later, he says in verse 28, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call what? Any person common or unclean. Through this vision that God gave Peter, God was showing Peter that not only has God in Christ erased the boundary between clean and unclean as it relates to food and drink, so now we can eat whatever we want. But far more importantly, God has erased the boundary between clean and unclean as it relates to people. God was revealing to, pe to Peter, there's no such thing as clean or unclean people based on ethnicity, race, nationality, background. We are all cherished image bearers of God. See, it would have been scandalous for a Jew like Peter to go into and visit the home of a Gentile like Cornelius who was considered unclean, but Peter does so at God's command because what God is showing Peter is that in Christ, God has destroyed the hostility between Jew and Gentile and actually the barrier between every racial and ethnic group. And God is beckoning people from every background into one spiritual family. Everyone is in need of God's forgiveness and God's forgiveness is for everyone. Jew and Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, north, south, whatever it is. Here's our second point. The gospel is for everyone, not just our own countrymen or people who look and sound like us. So I'm super thankful to live in the country we live in. And I'm grateful for those who have made great sacrifices to preserve and safeguard our freedom. So I love where I live. And, and any, when I go and visit other countries, when I'm there for an extended amount of time, I, I typically realize, you know, I'm, I'm eager to get back home, right? I mean, there have been a few places, I must admit. You know, I've been, uh, I remember when I was in Barcelona, up in northeast uh, Spain, it's just so incredibly gorgeous. 
And those are some of those places you kind of have to be dragged back home to. But uh, in fact, I was, at, I was visiting a missionary, a church playing missionary in Catalonia. And uh, just an incredible missionary. He planted one church and led and made discipled elders. And they became uh, autonomous and, and self-supporting, went and planted another church. So I was with him and just, you know, seeing his ministry in action, seeing people come to Saving Faith. And he took me to uh, the, the, the Balearic Sea. And we're looking at this incredible, beautiful sea. And he said, hey, we can take a dip if you want. I said, well, I've, I've got jeans on and a polo shirt and my Converse. He goes, oh. I said, I don't have a, a bathing suit. He goes, nobody around here cares about that. I'm like, what do you mean? Nobody? Like, I care about that. What do you mean nobody cares about that? So he proceeded to take off his shirt, jeans, socks. He did leave his underwear on. And he jumped into the sea, asked me to follow him. I didn't. Um, but then he got out of the sea. This is the part that I, I came back home, and I was telling Janine, the first thing I said to her was, I told her this story. She said, that's really what stood out to you? But he got out of the sea, put his jeans on over his wet underwear, and just spent the rest of the day like that. I'm just like, I, that's all I could focus on. I couldn't hear a word he said. Like, how does anybody do this? I mean, this is horrible. But I was in that part of the world, and this is just so beautiful. Um, but I realized wherever I go that we live in a great country. But sometimes, sometimes we think that our country is all there is. And we hear about the tsunamis in other parts of the world that claim hundreds, yea, thousands of lives, and it barely even is a blip on our radar. We read about persecuted Christians in Nepal, in southern India, and in North Africa, and, and it, doesn't even, it doesn't stick. We don't think about it. We, we read about the genocide in western Sudan, and it, you know, we, we, we never even think about it. At best, we just never think about the, the other nations and nationalities. At worst, we think we shouldn't be wasting our time trying to reach them. After all, we've got plenty of problems here in our own country. That sort of ethnocentric pride was at the heart of first century Judaism. And so what, they, what was so stunning to Peter was, well, no, this salvation is for everyone. Our mission, as you may recall from the past five weeks, I hope you do, uh, what we believe God is calling us to do goes like this, treasuring Jesus becoming like him together, and sharing his gospel. Well, that last part is meant not just to our neighbors in North Alabama, though that is important, but this is a global task. This is a global task to get the good news of the gospel to all who lie in darkness all over the world. Now, of course, we can't do it ourselves, but we're partnering with people in all parts of the world to get the good news of the gospel. So we're partnering with Indians in India. We're partnering with Nepali in Nepal. We're partnering with uh, Sudanese in Sudan. And so we're working with people to get the good news of the gospel out, recognizing that our country is not all there is. Because God is a global God, we must have a global vision because anything else falls short of what God's majesty uh, demands. Now, we continue to work our way in the story. Peter finally makes it to Cornelius' house. And what does Cornelius do? He falls down and worships, starts to worship Peter. And Peter says, whoa, wait, stop. Stop what you're doing. Like, I'm not the person to worship. Don't worship me. I'm not one to be worshipped. And then Cornelius gets his family and his crew together. And he says to Peter, well, God asked me to send for you. I have no idea why, but now we're all here. We're eager to hear from you. What do you have for us? Look at verses 33 through 44. So I sent for you at once, 
and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that, no, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. By the way, uh, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that anyone who obeys God is acceptable. This is talking about does what is right in terms of responding to the Gospels. We'll see in a moment. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all of the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So here's Cornelius, again, this devout, generous prayer warrior uh, who is a God-fearer, we're told, and he realizes for the first time that what God demands is more than just religious activity, more than just good behavior, more than just praying a lot or moral improvement. Cornelius realizes by the work of the Holy Spirit that when it comes to salvation from a holy God, all of these good works count for nothing. What Cornelius needs is not a cleansing that comes through religious ritual, but a cleansing that comes from outside of himself. What he needs is forgiveness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. And this, is, this leads really to what's called the Gentile Pentecost. Gentiles being overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, gripped by their own sin and their need of a Savior, speaking in tongues and praising God with great joy. They who were once far off have been brought near in Christ. Those to whom the, the covenant promises did not fall have been welcomed into God's family. They who were trying in vain by their own foolishness, by their own self-salvation projects to save themselves have been granted salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the glory of the Christian faith. This is the beauty of the gospel. In Christ, we are reconciled to God and all of our sins are forgiven. Even our self-righteousness, all of our impure thoughts, all of the trust we put in our good works, all of our laziness, our failure to read the Bible, our failure to pray, our failure to, to, to strive in, in holiness, all of our passive-aggressive responses and angry outbursts, all of our hypocrisy, judging others for the very things we do, all of the sins we want so desperately to forget, and even the sins we try so passionately and desperately to hide, all of that nailed to the cross where Jesus took the punishment for our sins 
and cleansed us completely, granting to us God's complete forgiveness and His unwavering acceptance. Professor and theologian Brad Songson writes, In Christ we live beneath an open heaven, having the definitive proof in the cross of Christ that God is outrageously for us, not against us. After all, what more could God do than to give His own Son to demonstrate that He is fully invested in us? If you hear nothing else this morning that I say, please hear this. If you are in Christ, God is outrageously for you. You have been forgiven. You have been cleansed. There is nothing that God is holding against you. There is nothing that will ever come between you and this Creator God. And all that's ours, not because we deserve it or because we've been so pious or prayerful, but because Jesus has secured this for us by living and dying for us. This is the message. This is the message that God sent Peter to give to the very morally upright person, Cornelius. And I want you to notice how cross-centered his message was, Peter's was. Verses 38 and 39, and we are witnesses of all that he did, uh, Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. So to these men that Peter had just met, Cornelius and his family, he doesn't spend his time sharing his own personal story. He doesn't tell him about everything that God has brought him through, and he doesn't tell him about everything that God has done in his own life, his own personal testimony. Instead, he clearly points these people to Jesus and what Jesus did. Now, there's great value in our stories. Our stories capture people's attention. They, they humanize us. They help other people realize we're sinners in need of God's grace, just like everybody else. We love a good personal story. I love a good personal story. We had three little kids living in a tiny apartment in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, right in the heart of the city where I was going to seminary. And they were active and they were busy. And the one thing I could do at, at the end of the night is I could say, guys, come here. I want to tell you a story. And they would come and they would sit down for like five seconds. And then I would tell them a story and they would get up and start destroying the apartment again. But, uh, but when I would say, come here, let me tell you a story, they would listen. As a preacher, most of the comments that I get after sermons, either in person or via email, almost always have to do with the story that I told, typically about something dumb that I did. And I could tell those stories for days. But the personal stories must pave the way. They must till the ground. They must set the stage for the greatest story, and that is news about who Jesus is and what He's done. Sometimes people say, well, I, I share the gospel all the time. I share the gospel regularly. But what they really do is they share their own story. And it may be a wonderful story. It may be a great story of transformation, even brought about by the Holy Spirit. But if it never gets to Jesus, they're not sharing the gospel. They may be sharing a great story, but they're not sharing the gospel. This is so critical. Look at the focus of Peter's word, how, just how Christ-centered it was. He focused on Jesus' life, verse 38, all that he did in the country and in Jerusalem. He focused on Jesus' death, verse 39, how they put him on a tree, put him to death on a tree. He focused on Jesus' resurrection, verse 40, how God raised him on the third day. And finally, how we can receive the benefits of Jesus' cross work by believing in him, verse 43. And that results 
in the remarkable conversion of Cornelius and his entire family. So here's our final point this morning. The power to reconcile one to God and make clean is in the gospel alone, the testimony of Jesus Christ and what he has done. That's where the power is. Again, I love a good story. I love telling a good story. I love hearing a good story. But our stories, if they don't take people to who Jesus is and what he has done, they're never going to have the power to, trans- to bring about transformation, to bring someone to repentance and faith by the work of the Spirit. It's not going to be the cleverness of our words. It's not going to be the sophistication of our presentation. It's not even going to be the personal stories of transformation, as valuable as they are. And here's another thing. It's not just the news that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came and lived a perfect life as our substitute was raised again on the third day. But it's also the news that this same Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, now rules victoriously as the King of kings and the judge of the living and the dead. Look at verse 42. And he commanded us to preach, Peter says, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To all people, God is offering forgiveness even now in this room. The, the, the gospel is here. The offer of forgiveness is here. As I mentioned, it is, a, it is an offer of complete and final forgiveness in Christ so that all who receive it, so if you receive it, you never have to worry about God's judgment again. You never have to worry about how God feels about you. But that offer of forgiveness, it also comes with a warning. Those who refuse to repent and believe are under God's judgment right now and will be judged severely and suffer for all eternity because of their rejection of Him. What's the most common way you think people often share their faith or their testimony? For me, what I hear probably more than anything else is someone say, I asked Jesus into my heart. And, and you know, I don't want to be hypercritical here, and I think I, understand what, I do understand what people mean by that, but that's not really a biblical description of how salvation works. Jesus is not some lonely beggar waiting to be accepted. Jesus is not some guy sort of on the outskirts, outside the party, just waiting for an invitation. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is the Lord of creation before whom every knee will bow. We don't invite Jesus in. We fall down before him, profess him as Lord, and receive his offer of forgiveness based on his work on the cross and resurrection. Now let me close with this quote from R.C. Sproul. It's long, but I just found it to be so helpful. Sproul says, Today people say, I gave Jesus permission to be Lord of my life. But that is arrogant patronage. We do not give Jesus permission to be Lord of our life. He is the Lord of our life. He is the one who gives permission not we. We are a narcissistic culture such as the world has never seen before. We think that salvation is all bound up in what we do and what we allow. Today, we do not tell people that Jesus is our judge, not just after we die, but right now. That's bad news, unless 
He is also our advocate, our defense attorney, our redeemer. Unless we put our trust in him alone for salvation, then the judge becomes our friend and our advocate. Then the judge gives the remission of sin. That is, he removes from the record all charges against us. But until or unless we put our trust in Christ alone, he is our judge and all of our sins are written large in front of him. If we do not submit to him, the gavel will come down and there will be no mercy. There was a sermon that Jonathan Edward preached in the early 1700s, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, you know, it was very law heavy. There wasn't a lot of grace in it. But he did, he did describe in the most vivid pictures what happens to those who continually resist the gracious offer of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is available to all who would repent and receive Christ. But to those who reject Him, those who will not receive Him, those who do not believe in Him, turn from their sin, the gavel will soon fall. And in fact, they exist even now under the judgment of God. This is what God sent Peter to tell Cornelius. His religious activity, it would never be enough. His hours of prayer, perhaps even on his knees, never enough. His moral standing, his upright reputation in the community, it would never be enough. He needed Jesus. And in Jesus, he would find forgiveness, the removal of all guilt and shame, and that elusive peace. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, Cornelius responded in faith. And so I guess let me just end with one question. Are you a Cornelius this morning? A very good person. Everybody respects you. You come to church. You serve in a ministry. You're spending time in prayer. You're a generous person. But you've never really come to the end of yourself. You've never really come to the recognition that you, just like everybody else, you need a Savior because you are broken and sinful and you are infinitely apart from the Holy God. May God work by His Spirit to bring salvation to someone today. May He work by His Spirit to give us a global vision for the gospel and stir in our hearts to care about and to be compassionate for and to share the good news, not just our story, which is important, but who Jesus is and what He's done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank You so much for my church family. And I just consider myself so blessed to be able to serve and lead this church as one of the elders. And I pray that you would continue to minister to us by your spirit. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning. I pray for that person here who is rebelling, resisting you, insisting on living life for herself and in her own way. Father, will you bring her to brokenness and faith? I pray for that one this morning who... Um, maybe has professed Christ 50 years ago, calls himself a believer, but really has never turned from his own sin, never realized that his only hope is in the cross work of Jesus Christ. I pray that you might stir by your spirit. And God, I know I'm just, I'm just throwing out the seed. I'm just kicking away some of the boulders and trying to stir up the dirt. If anything will grow, if anything will be made alive, it will be because of the work of your spirit. And I ask that you would cause it to be so this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.